It's great to be in Central Oregon. I have this wild kind of varied history, but a strong connection to Central Oregon. I have a brother that lives here in Bend and two that are over in Prineville. And I spent um, a good portion of my adult life and raising kids over there in that Central Oregon town. So it always feels like coming home when I drive over the mountain. It feels really good. And, and it was killer because it was about 60 and cloudy in Portland. And then you drive over and hit Warm Springs, the reservation there, and then it just all busts open. And I think, God lives over here. He does. <laughs> so grateful to be here. Um, it is kind of a weird web. I mean, you heard Ken kind of explain in terms of relationship how that all works. And um, I've tried to figure out if that's nepotism, favoritism, what happens when pastors call other pastors and have them come speak and do that. Is, uh, is it just because this is the people we know or is it for some other reason or what's that look like? Linda Van Voorst was... Uh, in a youth department that I was responsible for. So I watched her grow up and go off to Moody, and, and her dad is a really good friend of mine and still down in L.A. I talked to him this morning. She put on an excellent conference, uh, truly just stellar, yesterday. I, I obviously have spoken in a few places, so I get to see some things, but yeah, I would say that was uh, tremendous. You want to pick up the packet and it just at least avail yourself to what Antioch is committed to in relationship to partnering with parents. It's, uh, it's really, really strong, grateful for everything that happened yesterday. This morning, my desire is to actually deliver a sermon, which wasn't going to be possible this morning, save for my niece, Lindsay Hendricks, who was able to print it for me here at the school. I don't know, I lost my folder yesterday somewhere, and so the sermon was, and that was luckily was on my computer, if you believe in luck, and then uh, Lindsay was able to print it for me. Thank you, Lindsay, appreciate that. Um, and that's, they've actually hosted me this weekend, so you don't know this probably, but Evan is a master chef. Did you know that? You probably don't, well, you, you didn't, but he, he's an unbelievable cook, so I won't stay with my brother, I go to my nephews, because he's a better cook. <laughs> Today, we are resurrection people. What I mean by that is that we are people of the empty tomb. It's a truth that needs to be burned into us, and on Sundays, it's a great day to do that. It stands in opposition to the entire world. It really is goofy looking that we would be a people that would be enthralled with a dead man's name. Somebody has written a song about that, even. That we would be a people that would uh, shout this name. Now, is he dead? No, we believe he's alive. And that's why we come here on Sunday mornings and why we would give him reverence and worship. But we're people that believe that the tomb is empty. It's crucial for us because that's our story. That's what belongs to us. And my desire this morning is to share a little bit about what it means to be family and to give to our family the most necessary things. There's lots of help out there for people, lots of help for families in particular, and trying to raise up kids. And everybody's got an opinion on how to do that. And the world in particular does. Um, this is all information that you probably know, but 
as children grow up and reach adolescence, that demographic has the largest uh, budget, if you will, of discretionary spending of any demographic in the United States. You think, now, wait a second. How could that be? They don't make any money. That's true, but all the money they have is spent by their discretion. They're not really paying bills or have-tos or any of those things. And that particular fact alone has created our uh, economic situation. It drives our economy. Your children, my children, being indoctrinated into that. I'm not necessarily passing judgment. I'm just telling you what uh, Madison Avenue thinks and what Wall Street thinks. There is a deep interest in trying to educate and train up families by lots and lots of people. Cultures that come from all parts of life and want to create values and language and all kinds of things that will pretty much set a course for people for the rest of their lives. And God instituted this thing called family and said, uh, actually, this is the first governmental institution. We'll take a man and a woman and I will join them together and they will produce children and this becomes the very bedrock of all institutions. This is how humanity operates. So we all have been part of families. We are part of families. Our experiences could be strong and fulfilling experiences from family, uh, but probably the reality is that most of us have bits and pieces of strong experiences and then weaker experiences and maybe even abusive experiences. And yet, we'll probably all have opportunity to create a family. And how in the world do I try and establish something that was different and better than my own experience? As a young husband and father, I can remember the weight of that feeling and thinking my own experiences, when I looked backwards, felt lacking in so many areas. Much like a lot of the young guys that I talk to now that will come into my office and kind of pour out their hearts, whether married or single, but just simply saying, I don't know that I've had the right experiences to step into this family business. I don't know what to do. I can remember feeling those same feelings and um, was a believer and cried out to God daily, nightly, that if, God, if you don't teach me somehow by osmosis, I'm not going to know how to do this. My desire this morning is to look at two psalms, Psalm 127 and 128. Can't say that we'll get through all of it, but just we'll we'll go there and take a peek that give us a picture of family. So you can, if you have a Bible, you can turn there right now. These are psalms of ascent, and this is how it fits in in relationship to family. There are 15 psalms, uh, the psalms of ascent, and Israel utilize these psalms, they're all really short for the most part, but utilize these psalms to uh, sing on the way to Jerusalem during festival days when they were going to worship. 
Now, if you are in the nation of Israel, geographically living there, it doesn't matter from which angle you come, north, south, east, or west, Jerusalem is uphill. Okay, it's uphill because it's, it's up in the hills. So that's why it's referred to as the Psalms of Ascent. They're walking up. And if you look at them, they're, they're fascinating to read, and um, especially when you have this context. These were used for families to sing on the way up to Jerusalem. So you have your family and perhaps uh, extended family making this trek to worship God. And they sing these songs. These would be like favorite family songs, if there is such a thing. There are a couple in my household. I'm not very musical, so we didn't go down that route too far. But uh, my children actually ended up being very musical. I don't know how that happened, but at any rate... Uh, these would be like campfire songs. To, they would be well-used, well-worn songs. The difference with the Psalms of Ascent and anything else that would be sung is that these were deeply theological. This is an aside, but my personal conviction is that for Christians in this modern era, and maybe even longer than that, have learned and captured more theology in songs than they ever have from sermons. That's why it's so important for worship leaders to be theologically correct. Because those songs are going to stay with us. It's really important. Worship is, is so important at that level. Even listening here and looking at the songs that we were singing this morning, those are old. Those are really old. And there was a day when there was a big worship war on with songs and should we sing hymns or should we sing choruses? And actually it was the wrong discussion. Yes, these have been rearranged and they sound a little more pleasing to our ear in this day and age and that's great. But you can't help but read and sing those songs and understand that there's some deep theology that's being expressed. Well, this was it for the Psalms of Ascent for the nation of Israel. Mom and dad leading the way, or perhaps grandma and grandpa, and as you're walking up to Jerusalem, singing songs and pouring out before God, and your children listening and participating and hearing over and over and over the promises of God, the story of God, filling their hearts. So by the time they get to temple, they're ready. That's the context that we look at these two psalms this morning. It's also interesting to note that some of these will have that uh, background kind of music and thought in them as um, Israel returning from exile as part of their story. So you'll hear some of that exilic talk, if you will. That's also very interesting to note. Them understanding that God was returning them from captivity. And most importantly, there were songs that could be sung by the family. So this first one, Psalm 127. Some theologians and scholars have, um, have debated this. Uh, King Solomon wrote this, and most would say that it could be attributed to wisdom literature. We don't know who wrote Psalm 128 at this point, so people have taken stabs, but nobody's really landed. Some have stated that these two psalms are related to each other, and could be likened to the parables in the New Testament of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. Both of the Psalms speak of blessing and reward. I say that these are foundational truths, and we'll, 
we'll try and break them down this morning. So if you have your Bible, then just read along with me here silently. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. This speaks to the absolute sovereignty of God. And you will hear of blessing and reward and promise, as well as even instruction. Right off the bat, though, you'll hear King Solomon saying that there are definitively two preoccupations with humanity, and maybe with men in particular, shelter and security. So when the psalmist, King Solomon, uses the word house, it can both be rendered as a physical structure and as family. So I want to get it in your mind's eye that we can talk about a house and its building like this. Maybe this is God's sovereignty to have these sticks behind me as kind of a visual for you. The building of a building is very much what he's talking about here, as well as this institution of family. It's crucial for us to understand that because uh, the whole of domestic order is built around the government of a family. And then from the family, it extends out to the city. So when he starts to speak of watchmen, that would uh, be in reference to those that would be at the city gate and perhaps on the walls of the city. That's how governments worked in that day, protecting those that are inside the walls from marauders and, and uh, kings that wanted to come and invade. And so we watch as the family is addressed and then this larger family addressed in the city and watchmen and gates and all of those things. The truth to understand is that God is sovereignly involved in all of these affairs. It gets a, a little bit of a tension, though. What's the tension? Well, we would understand that we're to work to build a family and we're to be involved in providing shelter and security. Moms and dads understand that pretty well. We also know that the world pushes in to create all kinds of fears related to that. Whether we're actually going to be able to make this happen. Can I buy a house? Maybe you're in the process of losing one. Lots of people are losing them. Does that mean I'm losing my home? Those physical things of just trying to create shelter for your family. But also the security of saying my house will be safe haven for children to grow and to be all that God wants them to be. Sometimes you don't even have the time to think of that. I'm at the parenting conference yesterday, and it strikes me again that I don't know if it's just because of my age now or that I'm more attuned to this or, or what, but if I sit down and talk to young couples, and I'm talking to the mom, and they have young kids 
the overwhelming descriptor is exhaustion. That's it. Now I have a daughter, she's 31, and has got three kids. Five, three, and one. And it's exhaustion. And every time I talk to her, and my wife will constantly say, this isn't going to last, honey. This isn't going to last. It, you definitely will go through this. But in the moment when the three-year-old this week has thrown up all night, okay, and you got an hour of sleep maybe, and you don't get to call in sick the next morning, it all starts, complete with school and meals and, you know, all the stuff that happens in a home. Yeah, you're thinking, ah, building security and building my family. I'm just trying to survive, that's all. I don't know if I can think about that stuff. And fathers, on the flip side, a preoccupation maybe with work, but striving to try and get to some place of stability for the family. The tension is that we're working as to believe in God, and believing in God as to work without fear. So, can that actually happen? Well, it's funny, but Psalm 128 will address it, and hopefully we can get there, but this whole idea of fear. But let me put it to you this way. When humanity, one of the stories in the Bible, when humanity kind of takes it on themselves to do something without God, like the building of the Tower of Babel, God has something to say about that, doesn't he? He comes down and says, yeah, you're not going to do that. I'm scattering you. This isn't going to happen. The tower isn't going to be built. Well, what is the tension? Are we allowed to build anything? The tension is that God says, I'm sovereignly involved. So this is the difference between independence and dependence. It isn't the actual work that you're doing that I'm concerned about. This is God speaking. What I'm concerned about is whether you think you can create all of this independently and secure your family. Or whether you're going to recognize that it's all dependent on me. And really, it's attitude more than anything else. Does that make sense? Some have asked uh, me in various times, Luke, can you give me one tangible thing to do with my family so that we could we could uh, at least be working towards a godly heritage? And, you know, it's a great question. So is that like make sure you get your family to church? Make sure that you are in your Bibles and that you have family devotion? You know, there's a million ways to go, right? Make sure that you're praying for your children at least three hours a day, locked in a closet. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of ways to go. But here's what I've tended to give out more as in counsel than anything else. When you sit down at a meal, thank God for your food. Now, I've had people argue this one with me and say, that just seems so cliche. It seems so tired, so trite. Really? We're going to thank God for our food? Like that's a big deal? Well, let me just put it to you this way. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's have God put it to us. Just flip in your Bible to Romans chapter 1. I'll do this quick. If you ever want to know or explain what's wrong with the world, this is where you can go. 
Romans 1, beginning at verse 18. Here's what Paul says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse, especially if you live in Bend. Every time I get up in the morning and go, I don't know how you deny that. It's unbelievable. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, so their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents." without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Yeah, that's a huge litany. What would I want you to take away from it? That's the downward spiral of humanity. And what God basically says here is, I'm not going to judge you, I'm not going to punish you. I'm just going to let you do what you want to do. I'm just going to hand you over to your own desires. And you watch as humanity augurs into the ground. Here's my question to you. What got it started? What's the start of it? They didn't acknowledge God or give thanks. That's the start of the downward spiral. So when you sit down at the dinner table, it would be fair It would be good to just stop and say, God, I recognize that you're there. My family recognizes that you're there. And we thank you that you're there for this and for all that's good in our lives. That there would be an acknowledgement. That's really what God is saying here. It's the intention of our heart. Not so much what we're doing, but would you even acknowledge that I'm the sovereign one? So, we capture this thought by speaking it to our families very simply. There's room for studying the Bible and room for devotions and disciplines and all those things. And I'm not trying to make this too simplistic. But what I am saying to you is, acknowledge God. Sing the song. It's funny, but when Moses is right at the end of his life, and he's getting ready to take the people into the promised land, and God says, Moses, you're not going in. You and I have some issues, and so you're not going in. You're going to die outside. But 
These people that you're leading need to know who I am. They need to remember what I've done. So please write a song and teach the song to them. And you can find that song, Deuteronomy 32. Moses writes a song so the people can sing and remember God. And the psalmist here is saying the same thing in Psalm 127. Literally, let's just acknowledge our God. Let's not forget who he is or what he's done. So, in continuing in that theme, the psalmist is speaking to the idea of a watchman laying awake in vain, someone trying to build something without the knowledge of God's sovereignty, not the acknowledgement that it's God who guards the city, So when we're living independent lives, then we have many fears, fears for our family and our very being, but when we're living dependently, we don't. We understand that God is taking care of all that, and we're singing this song, hopefully to our children, and saying, okay, um, if I'm going to live independently, then what I'm going to need to do is lengthen my day. Moms, do you ever felt that way? I need 26. 24 is not enough. Can't get it all done. Fathers, you ever feel that way? I just need some more time. I'm going to lengthen the day. I'm going to go to bed late and get up early and try and make this thing work. So I want to give you some freedom today. Okay? I want you to take a deep breath. I want you to see if you can actually internalize this. Here's what the psalmist is asking you to believe. God can perform more good for those who trust him while they sleep than they can perform with anxious labor for themselves. Verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Anybody have trouble sleeping? I don't know what causes that. Old age, I think. That's what it feels like for me. I can remember, though, in younger times and thinking, man, I'm just not getting the sleep I need. And then trying to go to sleep and can't get to sleep and then worrying about that. Right? Yeah, you're laughing because you know exactly what that's all about. And there reached a point where I went, you know what, God? You know I'm not getting any sleep. You obviously know that. So I'm going to quit worrying about it. I'm not asking for any more sleep. I just don't want to worry about the fact that I'm not getting any. Okay, that I can't get to sleep or whatever. It was amazing to have that burden lifted and go, you're sovereign, you know what's happening. If you think I can do it on three, then... I think I can do it on three. We'll go for it. Taking the pressure off and saying, God is going to work for your family for shelter and provision and security even while you sleep. Now, you're going to have to step out in faith and stand on that promise. This is what those families were singing on their way up. It's it's true. We were made to sleep one-third of our lives. All the studies prove it out. Why do you suppose we were made to sleep one-third of our lives? Why didn't God just make us without having to sleep? 
Interesting thought. In other places in Scripture, um, it's declared that God's power is declared in our weakness. And there is nobody more vulnerable than a sleeping person. True? You're at your absolute weakest. If you're anything like my wife, you're unconscious. You, there's nothing that can disrupt that. You, yeah, it's just unbelievable. There isn't anything that you can do when you're sleeping. Nothing. And I think that's God's way of saying, you are dependent. You're finite. I'm your creator. Will you rest and trust? I'm going to give you sleep so that you'll trust me. You do what you can, and the Lord will do what you cannot do. He'll take care of that. My wife has lived on a verse in particular out of Proverbs chapter 10. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. There is a place for us to understand that God indeed wants to bless us, and we're to be receiving that and understand that there isn't sorrow to it. No hedging our bet, being dependent upon him. He gives to you in your sleep. Stand on that. If you just look back, though, at Psalm 126, you're going to see this uh, interesting juxtaposition of the labor of the law contrasted with the laughter of the gospel. Look at 126, first two verses there. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Whenever you're feeling the stress of trying to make it all happen, whether that be work or inside the home with the kids or whatever your life is made up of, you need to stop and remember Remember that it's God who's at work in your life. We think in very short increments. Martin Luther was asked the question, the father of the Reformation, I suppose. Hey, if you knew the Lord was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? He said, I'd plant a tree. You think that sounds dumb. Plant a tree? What does that mean? It was Luther's way of saying, listen, our view of time is really skewed. God is at work completely. And we think we can make things grow. I know the weight somewhat of what it feels like to try and plant a church. I watched as Ken has suffered under the weight of that. It's good suffering. He deserves to suffer. <laughs> Just kidding. God is teaching him. <laughs> no. Just the weight of that. What does it feel like to try and create a body of people that will worship God in Central Oregon? And all that comes into it. You, and you don't know the half of it. It's crazy. But it takes a long time. It's a lot of planting and a lot of sowing a lot of watering. 
And we want everything to happen right away. And that's what it feels like even with their own, own families. Plant a tree, rest, understand that God is at work. These are crucial things for us to understand. Now, we kind of shift gears in the psalm because now uh, the sovereignty of God is put forward in a very positive manner. Look at verse 3. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The, the fruit of the womb is a reward. So when we stop to think about this and say, okay, I'm resting in the idea that God's in control and taking care of security, now how do I view my children? Well, the best way to view your children is to view them how God views them. So what's the first thing he says? These children are a gift. Really? <laughs> no more gifts, thank you. I got enough. Really? So that's, okay, but that's what God says. And God looks at it from the standpoint of planting a tree, okay, that this is going to take a while. You'll see it contrasted in Psalm 128 here in a second. These are like olive trees, okay? That's what children are like. It's going to take a while. Take a deep breath. They're not going to fall off the train at three years old. My daughter, devastated. Isaiah's five, and he went to school this year. And he comes home, and he's talking about a girl. This little girl that he met at school. And um, they sit next to each other, and he's telling his mom about this friend and this girl. I can't remember her name now. Oh, no, I do remember her name. Her name is Zion. <laughs> I can't forget that. So uh, he's, he's having this, this little relationship with Zion, and and he just said, Mom, I, we just sit there and stare at each other. <laughs> My daughter calls me. She's going to kill me. Ken, don't record this. Don't, okay. She calls me crying and just says, I'm being supplanted by Zion. <laughs> I mean, she's devastated. Like, there's another woman in his life. <laughs> uh, I forgot what I was talking about. What, what does that mean? Uh, just that it takes a while for kids to grow. Okay? And I said, he's five. He, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, staring at girls is kind of cool. Yeah, you know. But he's five. He doesn't know. There's a long way to go here. But here's what we're going to try and do. What does God say? God says children are the possession of God. They're not to be taken for granted. They're his possession. And he gives them as gifts. And you may say, that's really hard for me to understand right at this moment. I get that. This is that trust factor, that dependence. Read it, understand it, help yourself to incorporate it. These are gifts. You have a responsibility to take care of the gift that God gave you. Because it's God's. It's his. And I would say, fathers, this falls on you even more. Because we get preoccupied with a lot of things, and it's hard not to look at children as a liability. Like, this is going to cost me a lot of money. Yeah. I get that. I get it especially now, when I look at the mortgage I have on my house. That, that I thought I was doing pretty good on until we were just trying to make the last push to get everybody through college. And now that looks like 
it's really close to being upside down. Right? Got the assessment of my house in the mail this week. It was a wonderful thing. I owe more than it's worth. Crazy. I know what it costs. God knows what it costs. It's a gift to you. It's his possession. Fathers, got to think that way. Verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of, one, of one's youth. Here, the picture shifts pretty dramatically. Now we're starting to look at this with the battle raging. The blessing that's given by God in verse 3 is described in verse 4 in terms that any father is going to understand now. That is, any father that is who knows the giver of sons. If you would know the giver of sons, then you're going to resonate here. These are to be like arrows. Arrows that are true and straight. You make those arrows, you craft those arrows over a long period of time. There's a lot of practice shooting. There's a lot of truing, tweaking the fletchings, sharpening the tip. It takes a while. But here's the thought that you need to have, fathers. These sons are going to fly to places you'll never go, cannot go. That's what God is saying. You have a tremendous job in helping to shape this next generation. So what's required of you, dads? Well, the psalmist is saying, you're going to shoot these arrows, so your aim better be true. You better point them in the right direction because they're deadly weapons for his kingdom. They stand on your shoulders. And that is true for our children. They stand on our shoulders. And what that means literally is this. If you can see a little bit of God and his sovereignty and how it works in your life, The idea is that you would give that to your children and they'd climb up on you and be able to see a little farther. That's the idea. We're standing on top of each other that way. Your godly heritage, which includes all of your mistakes that all of your children see, what's necessary for them to see is a mother and a father who are deeply dependent on the gospel of Jesus that God can and does forgive. That's what your children need to see. Not a life lived perfectly, and I'm not saying you get to not try and live godly. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is you have to own the gospel. The the greatest gift that you can give to straighten the arrows is to own the gospel. Not church or churchianity, maybe not even Christianity, the way it's posed in a whole bunch of different places, but own the gospel. Not the plan of salvation, the ticket into heaven. I get that. The four spiritual laws or steps to peace with God, that's not what I'm referring to. I'm talking about a God who will forgive you of your sin today, whom you're dependent on for your prosperity and security and safety and provision. Do your children hear that? 
Or is it really just kind of an add-on thing? Make sure you get into heaven. Make sure you've prayed this prayer. And then let's go work really hard. That's not the gospel. If that's true, and the arrows become true, then you can read the capstone here, verse 5. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of these arrows. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. The city had walls and a gate, and the gate was really a very defensive thing. It was the entrance into the city, but it had to be really fortified. And the cities back in this psalmist's day had these massive gates, and they were deep with chambers, and all of the city business got done there. The whole of the judicial system and economic system and everything got handled at the city gate. It was the seat of government. And it also would be right at the wall where whatever outside culture there was would possibly be trying to infiltrate. So what is it as a father that you look forward to? You look forward to meeting your enemies at the gate with the total assurance that your children are not going to depart. Now, if you tell them that Christianity is some kind of moral code to keep, it is unmotivating. It is defeating. But if you'll speak of a Savior who has invaded your life and has redeemed your soul, and you'll speak of a Savior that you love, I can't make you love him, okay? And I'm not going to stand up here and speak a bunch of mushy words. What I would like you to stop and do, and I did this with the parents yesterday, but I just want you to stop right now and think of your favorite story of Jesus. It may be something obscure. What's your favorite story of Jesus? What picture of him do you like? I shared mine. comes out of Revelation 19. He's the rider on the white horse. I, I can't read that passage without getting choked up. But it's hard for me to pick just one. Would it be for you? I'm not saying go home and become a biblical scholar. I am saying know your story, though. Know this Jesus, because that's what you're going to give to your children. And when they get to the city gates, you won't be ashamed. They won't depart. They know the story. All is vain unless the Lord is acknowledged in the lifestyle of the family. That's the truth. So, the lessons that my children learned about the faith, I shared a little bit about that yesterday, the lessons that they learned primarily came from the mistakes that I made. I tried to be intentional. I tried to teach I was a youth pastor of their growing up years. So I was in it, right? All kinds of different things trying to do. But the truth is, they didn't pick up the faith from what I said to them. And I sermonized a lot. There was some really good stuff in there. Trust me. They picked it up from the mistakes. And that's the truth. Think about this for a second. If you look and say, my spiritual growth from when 
I came to a saving knowledge of Jesus to now. Just in your mind's eye, tell me when you grew the most. What was the event? What was the situation? Now, we don't have time for me to just take your answers, but my guess is, my bet is, those were really difficult times. You don't probably remember, oh, I remember, it was August of 2008, and Ken was preaching, and it was an awesome sermon, and it changed my life. Now, if somebody actually has that testimony, praise God, but I don't think you're going to remember that. But you will remember a trial that you were privy to, involved in, that drove you to your knees, and maybe to some serious doubt and skepticism, and you felt like you were right at the brink, and God roped you in. That's when we grow. And so, here's the deal. We all want a godly heritage. Agreed? Children that walk with God. So you better pray really hard that your children will be godly. Is that a guarantee? Have you met families that prayed really hard and had kids that wandered off? It happens. God's at work. He's the sovereign one. So what do you do? There's no guarantee of godly kids. Here's the only guarantee. That you would be godly. There it is. That you would be the one who acknowledges God and his sovereignty. That you would give thanks to him. That you would sing the story of Jesus. You'd tell it to your kids. That you'd say, yeah, here's a picture of Jesus that I love. It's short. It's five verses. It was sung by families on their way up to Jerusalem. Look at the next psalm. I'll read it very quickly. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. N- not fearing the world, because nothing's worthy of your fear. Only one's worthy, God. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. In other words, it's good to work. It is. And to eat the fruit of your labors. This isn't about not working, but just understand you only have so much to give. You can't control it all. You're dependent on God. But you can relax and be happy. Verse 3. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around the table. Let's just be straight here. You don't build walls out of vines. Fathers, I'm just speaking to you. Spiritual formation and family and their spiritual formation is your responsibility. Wood and brick and mortar and foundation and you build it. The vine brings beauty and love and fruit. It's not very good for Uh, the framing of a house, though. It comes at the end. It's the last things we do. By the way, it's inside your courtyard, this fruitful vine. 
within your house. And then your children, they're like olive plants. It takes many years for an olive plant to mature, to produce fruit. On average, 15 years. I'm sure we're messing with genetics now and trying to make that faster. But when he wrote this, he understood it. Olive plants take a long time. And this maturation occurs around your table, your courtyard, your family. You don't farm this out to Linda or Kip or whoever's running youth ministry. That's not farmed out there. It's around your table. They'll help. They'll provide necessary help. But this is your responsibility, fathers. Verse 4, Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord, who thanks and understands that he is sovereign and that he will speak that to his family. It's a necessary reiteration. Verse 5, The Lord bless you from Zion and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem and all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Lastly, building this family culture, this structure, deeply thankful and acknowledging God and his sovereignty is supposed to produce a godly heritage. May you see your children's children. That's what the psalmist says. And in fact, dads, moms, your report card comes at the third generation. Not the second. The third. God has provided a way for us to be entirely dependent on him. May you rest and sleep with the knowledge that God is at work. May you tell your children and the people around your table the stories of our God, his gospel. May you be blessed and fulfilled and completely at rest with no fear of the outside culture. Bring it. The quiver is full. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, for giving us your word. Thank you for the simplicity. It's not complicated. Would you give us a heart to sing your songs? Would you give us a heart to repeat the stories of our God? Would you allow us to sleep, rest, free from worry, knowing that this is a long walk up the hill? Would you go with us? The end is great. It's a great journey. May our children see you and us more than what we say because we're dependent on you. And I thank you for Antioch. I thank you for Ken, especially his leadership, for his staff, for those that labor to present you truthfully. May you, may you bless this community of faith and their families to the third generation and beyond. For Jesus' sake and for his glory alone. Amen. Thank you.